0: Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and I love all things tech. And it is time for another Tech Stuff classic. We're not doing how air horns work. I tried to convince Tari to let me do that one, but she said it was far too loud and distracting. Instead, we are taking a look at a life-saving suite of technologies, the technology of firefighting. This episode originally published on July 13th, 2011. I hope you guys enjoy Chris Palett and myself going through the entirety of all tech associated with firefighting as of 2011. Enjoy. We wanted to talk about firefighting technology. We actually had a request come over Facebook for this, and we wanted to, uh, I thought that was a good request. You know, it was an interesting concept. We also, I think I got an email about it as well. Mm-hmm, so uh, we've had some, some people inquire about the technology used in firefighting, and there's a, a wide range of tech that we can talk about. Some of it is uh, stuff that is based off of, technology that's been around for more than a century and some mm-hmm. of it is really like uh, space age type stuff yeah, yeah so um, uh, I thought uh, I thought I'd start with one of the most um, iconic uh, images when you think about firefighting which of course is the fire engine or fire truck okay so uh, uh, I actually live not too far from a fire station and by not too far I mean, adjacent and uh yeah, and so i get to see fire trucks a lot as mm-hmm. it turns out uh they're pretty cool things and uh of course you know the the main uh, uh i think the main uh, feature on a fire truck has to be the the water tank that that it holds, um, right? You know, and and the water tanks, depending on the size of the truck, the water tank can be a different size as well. Like, a, you know, it's not unusual to find a fire truck that can hold a thousand gallons of water on its own, and of course, that's important because there's no guarantee that wherever the fire is is going to be close to either a pool of water or uh, a fire hydrant. Um, so, a, a fire truck has to be able to carry its own portable water supply, but. Having water on a truck is not enough. You have to have a way of getting that water out.
1: Right. So you would need some kind of pump.
0: Yes. And uh, and fire engines have pumps. They have uh, impeller water pumps. And an impeller water pump is a diesel-powered pump. So it's got its own independent diesel engine. Mm-hmm. And it has a, a rotor-like device that's got some curved blades on it that spin in the water tank. Now, this actually slings the water around and starts to move it in a circular fashion. It builds water pressure. And you relieve that water pressure by allowing the water to escape through water lines, also known as hoses. So they have to go through a valve and then it it goes through the hose and at the whatever is burning thing. (laughs)
1: <laughs> the whatever is burning thing? Yeah,
0: that's a technical term in the fire fighting trade. So the whatever is burning thing gets uh, deluged with water. And uh, there's actually some interesting controls on this. There's a series of controls. There's a, a pump panel that allows you to either manually control the pumps or or some of them are automated. They have like a mastermind control system that actually does this automatically. But uh, in a typical pump panel will have levers on it that allow you to direct where the water is going to go through, like which lines it's going to go through. And, of course, that's all going to depend upon which lines have been connected to the truck. And there are lots of different kinds of water lines also. And, again, when I say water lines, those are essentially the fire hoses. Right, yeah. These are a lot different from your – garden variety hoses. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes,
1: uh because they can handle a whole lot more pressure and deliver a whole lot more water. As Jonathan was saying just a moment ago, you can't be certain that you're going to be right next to a fire hydrant where the fire is and uh the fire truck is going to park on the street. Now, if the building, uh let's say it's a building is burning and it's away from the street, you've got to have enough water pressure to get to uh, the fire itself, so yeah. the hoses are long. They're they're uh, they've got some diameter on them, so you can really carry the uh, a good amount of water. And they've got to be able to withstand a lot of pressure.
0: Yeah, and they're also they tend to be treated for uh, mildew resistance as well, because one of the big problems with uh, fire hoses before the mildew resistant. Um, uh, film was uh, developed was that you had to dry them out after you used them. Because otherwise you would have mildew develop, it would start to rot the hoses, and then the hoses would not be stable. You you could have a hose rupture while you're trying to fight a fire because it's been weakened by mildew. So, uh... Yeah, there's a lot of elements that go into creating these these hoses, and I've got a few different types that I can talk about. Um, there's usually a there's a booster line, which is uh, only about an inch diameter, and it's usually used for small fires, like a a, a minor fire inside a, a, a building or something like that, or a minor brush fire even. Uh-huh. Um, Then you've got the cross-lay hoses. These are the main hoses. These are like the workhorses of a fire engine. Uh, They're located below the pump panel, and they can pump up to 95 gallons of water per minute. Uh, they tend to be about 200 feet long and they've got a diameter of an inch and a half. Mm-hmm. So then you've got, uh, the pre-connect lines. So like I said, you know, you've got all these valves that are attached to the fire engine and they're on all the different sides of the fire engine because you never know where you're going to be able to orient the, the engine in relation to the fire. Normally there is, uh, and there are at least three lines that are pre-connected when a engine rolls out of the station. So that way the fire fighters have a chance to immediately jump out of the truck and start fighting the fire uh, without having to fuss with unloading a hose, connecting it to the right valve, and then engaging the valve and fighting the fire that way. So pre-connect lines tend to be between an inch and a half to two inches in diameter, and they tend to be able to pump out around 250 gallons of water per minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got... Hoses that are designed specifically to hook up to hydrants, fire hydrants. Those are five inches in diameter. And a fire engine may carry up to a thousand feet of this hose, but it's in one hundred foot segments. Uh but there are also uh, uh other shorter segments called curb jumper hoses. Mm-hmm. So let's say that the building uh that you need to get about 150 feet of hose uh to get to the the fire. Uh, at whatever location you're at and you're hooking it up to a hydrant. You might not want to grab two lengths of the hydrant hose. That's 200 feet and, you know, you only need 150. Um, that, that means you're gonna have an extra 50 feet of hose that you're gonna have to maneuver around. Well, these curb jumper hose segments are typically in lengths between 25, uh, like 25 foot lengths and 50 foot lengths. Mm-hmm. So that way it's easier just to grab a smaller section so that you have a, enough length of hose to get to where you're going without having excess. Uh, then you've got your hose pack, which is a lighter hose. It's usually mm. a smaller diameter. And this is what, uh, is used by firefighters if they have to go into a building and climb up levels. It has to be more portable. Uh, you've got the ladder line. Uh, you know, most of these fire engines have a really long ladder that's on the back of them. Yep. Well, there's a, there's a line that is part of that ladder. It's actually, it's, it's, uh, a, a direct connection to the ladder. It's actually built in. Yeah, it's built in, and there is a a, um, a nozzle at the top of the ladder that can uh, shoot out. Uh, well, it's it's usually around 300 gallons per minute, so it's a pretty powerful uh, hose. And then you've got your deluge gun or deck gun. That's what's mounted on the top of the pump panel. That's the one that, you know, the, if you ever look at a fire engine and you see something that looks like a turret that's on the fire engine, yeah. that's the thing I'm talking about. All right, so we've been talking about hoses that can shoot out between 95 gallons and uh, 300 gallons of water. The Deluge gun is no joke. We're talking a 1,000 gallons a minute. Wow. Yeah, and you may say, well, if you've got a 1,000 gallons in the tank, does that mean that after a minute you've – completely exhausted your water supply and the answer is well yeah if that's what you're if you were just using the water in the tank but you can also hook up a a line to a um uh, a pool or lake or pond mm-hmm. and use that water to pump into the uh the the various lines that you're using now for that they use a um, uh, a, a a strainer it's a it's called a barrel strainer and that's what is used to filter out debris in ponds and pools and that kind of thing in order to be able to use that water to fight fires because of course if you get debris caught in the line then you've fouled the line you are you know in danger of losing the fight against the fire but uh
1: plus i imagine it would do quite a bit of costly damage to the equipment as well
0: sure yes all of that is is uh, you know an important thing to remember when you are trying to to fight fires. And then uh, there's also, uh, they tend to, trucks tend to also carry foam Mm -hmm. and there's different kinds of foam, uh, that are, that's used for different types of fires. Usually uh, a fire engine may only carry one type of foam, especially if it's, if it's in an area where, uh, fires are typically one type versus another. For example, a class A foam is a, a kind of foam that's used to soak down an area after you've put out a fire to, prevent reignition. Mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a flame retardant and then you've got like Class B foam that's the stuff that you use to fight uh, flammable liquid fires so like a car fire you might want to use that because of the gasoline problem right so uh, and then the the other part about fire engines they they are like mobile tool kits mm-hmm so that's where all the fire fighting tools are are mounted in that, and you may have some pretty low tech stuff in there. I mean, things like hooks and pikes that are used to tear down walls so that you can get at the places where the fire is to put the fire out. There's not a lot of tech there, right? But then you may have something like a chainsaw. You know, chainsaws have that. There's this, there's some tech there.
1: Mm-hmm. That's, that's true.
0: Pretty simple tech. It's usually you know a diesel engine that turns, turns the chain so that you can cut through stuff. Uh, but then there's also the, uh, a pretty famous tool I would say that you typically will find on a fire engine. Yeah.
1: And I think I know where you're going with this since you just mentioned it a moment ago, but yep. I think, uh, it's important to remember before, while you're trying to guess what this famous tool is yep. that firefighters, um, these days, often do a lot more than fighting fires they're yes. al- also responsible for uh uh doing some paramedic work mm-hmm. um you know they're first responders so if someone is injured they often call the the firefighters out um on the possibility that in addition to medical care there might be um, a fire related to it and they might need to do both things. Like, for example, as Jonathan was just pointing out, if you had a car wreck and, uh, there's a possibility that gasoline might spill and catch fire. So you have yep. someone trapped in a car. Um, there's a possibility that there might be a fire, so who better to send than uh, firefighters who are trained in medical care? But the the trick is getting them out of the car before yeah. something bad happens.
0: Yes, and that's Worse where happens, that's where say. this uh, this tool comes in. It's called the Jaws of Life, and really, Jaws of Life is actually a series of tools. It is not a single tool. Um, there's a company that makes. Uh, these tools, and the company is known as uh, the Jaws of Life company. Um, it actually has a full name, but it s- escapes my mind off the, off the top of my head, but Damn. it's a, a <laughs> not that kind. You still haven't seen that movie, have you? No, I have not. Yeah, we had someone ask us earlier. Um No, he has not seen Jaws. So Jaws of Life is Those a, are the Jaws of Death. Yeah. <laughs> jaws of Life, it's a hydraulically powered tool, mm-hmm. and by that we mean it uses a fluid to create uh, uh, pressure and move heavy duty tool elements Mm -hmm. and uh let's i guess a little digression on hydraulic would fluid would be a a good uh idea here sure so a hydraulic fluid is a fluid that is uh, typically it's it's not compressible it's incompressible and by that i mean you cannot squish it right right like most things that we think about there's a little squish factor but hydraulic fluid is supposed to be incompressible and uh, that means that the fluids at maximum density you cannot cram them the the molecules of that fluid any tighter than it already is so if so, you put pressure on it it's going to push yeah like if you have a a, a cylinder
1: filled with hydraulic fluid and uh, you you're trying to push a pr- press a piston into the cylinder at the point where everything is connected you have a you know, the solid cylinder at one end mm-hmm. and then the pre- the piston starts to push on it, there's a point at which the, the piston is not going to be able to push anymore because it is it is compressed yeah. as far as it can go. And it will not compress any further. And you can use that to do work.
0: Yeah, and there are plenty of tools that do use this. And uh, the Jaws of Life t- use uh, phosphate ester fluid. A lot of hydraulic fluid systems will use an oil-based fluid. As you can uh, imagine... Oil-based fluids are not necessarily the best thing to have in firefighting equipment.
1: I would imagine not.
0: Yeah. So phosphate ester is uh, non-flammable and non-conductive. So the these hydraulic tools, the jaws of life, there are actually, a, like I said, a line of them. And the ones that are typically used in firefighting are cutters, which... Do what they sound like they do. They they are designed to cut through stuff. So, for example, the body of a car, mm-hmm. um, because the hydraulic pressure is such that it will cause the the pinch the, the the cutting edges of this device to close at such a force that metal just crumbles. And then you've got spreaders. Spreaders are kind of like you know imagine a pair of pliers and you open them. That's kind of what spreaders are are. Doing they you, it's like pliers in reverse? Yeah, you shove of. shove it into a gap and then you start the hydraulic motor and or actually start the diesel motor and that starts the hydraulic fluid. Uh, it pushes the hydraulic fluid through and makes it do work and that's what causes the uh, the pincers to open and then you pop open whatever it is you were trying to open or it tears apart one one or the other and then uh, hydraulic rams. Ah yes. So uh, those are the three that are used the most frequently in firefighting uh, uh, scenarios. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of neat. We actually have an article on how the jaws of life work and it goes into detail on each of those tools. So if you want to learn more about it, I do recommend that it's a very useful, uh, resource. And then uh, also, I I guess I should mention while we're talking about hydraulics, the ladder on the fire trucks, those are operated through hydraulics as well. There's a, a piston that is, uh, it's got essentially two different hoses connected to it. And the hydraulic fluid will either cause the ladder to extend upward or to come back down. Mm-hmm. So those are that's your basic fire engine from uh from front to back. I mean there's there's a lot more we could talk about, but uh, there's so much more firefighting technology. I didn't want to just have this all be about fire engines. Right, right. I hope you guys are enjoying this classic episode of Tech Stuff so far. We're going to take a quick break and thank our sponsor. So what do you want to talk about next? Well, most of what I got is sort of uh,
1: high tech, cutting edge type stuff. Um, One thing that that we should talk about probably um, to some extent, or maybe we could cover it later if you want to go with all the high-tech stuff now, is the, uh, the stuff that the firefighters actually wear on their person themselves. Sure,
0: yeah, let's talk about that. Um, because we just talked about fire engines, we should talk about the, the fire gear that the, the uh, firefighters are wearing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this is they, they wear a lot. Yes, they do um
1: of course they have to uh, to try to stay protected from um the heat that's yeah. you know it depends on what's burning of course uh some some Different types of materials will burn hotter than other materials, um, and you certainly don't want to uh, have a firefighter go inside to rescue a person or to get at the source of a fire and have them uh, pass out from the heat or yeah. to to be uh, overcome by heat and smoke inhalation. Um, so you have to you know protect them externally and and make sure that they uh, they can breathe, uh, mm-hmm. make sure that they could see and and you know keep them as cool as possible um one one jacket that i read about that was really cool it's actually called turnout gear uh-huh. um, which is a uh, basically the the heavy duty jacket that you might see them wear it's actually from uh, a company called viking um but it's got thermal sensors built in to the the jacket itself oh cool now not not this is sort of again sort of cutting edge uh but this uh this this Different thing, uh, has sensors on the outside which change depending on there's an LED display, Mm -hmm. um, on the jacket and it will tell you at, you know, at what point it is going to be a, a serious issue. The heat is going to be a serious like the issue.
0: The heat is going to be too hot for the suit's integrity. Yeah. And, yeah. and the firefighter will be a danger.
1: Yeah. Well the the thing is it, it monitors what's going on outside and inside. Oh. So by looking at the firefighter, you know, another firefighter could say, look, you know, he's in danger right yeah. now being where he is and needs to get out of, of there because he may not be able to tell uh what's going on he may be so focused on fighting the fire right. that he may be ignoring a potentially dangerous situation for himself
0: in the heat of the moment
1: yes apparently when the outer temperature of uh where the fire is uh gets to about 482 degrees fahrenheit
0: mm-hmm.
1: um the display the led display starts to flash and at 662 degrees Fahrenheit, um, it will start flashing very fast. Uh, I can't imagine being in
0: anything that hot. It's interesting because, well, first of all, you gotta know, you know. Paper burns at Fahrenheit 451. Yes. But, uh, I, I was true. gonna, I was gonna say, you know, it's kind of interesting because if you look at the history of the heat resistant materials that firefighters have worn, uh, the, the go to material for quite some time was called Nomex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is a fire resistant material similar to nylon. It's kind of the same sort of, uh, uh, a feel of nylon, but it can withstand really intense heat. And it's a type of meta aramid fiber, which, Really, you just need to know that's a heat-resistant synthetic fiber that was developed in the lab. And um, it's actually kind of sort of a a distant relative to uh, Kevlar, um, which is a much more resilient, not necessarily heat-resistant, but physically resilient material. Mm -hmm. So Nomex was the standard for a really long time. Uh, Back in 1990, the Houston Fire Department partnered with NASA to develop a originally it was just to develop a new helmet for firefighters but then eventually through this partnership NASA suggested that perhaps they could completely redesign the firefighter suit and they started to create suits that would circulate liquids within the the suit's lining in order to remove heat so that it would uh, protect the firefighter longer in, in intense heat conditions. Because before that point, the, the Houston firefighters were really only rated to go into uh, areas that were 300 degrees Fahrenheit or cooler. Um, afterward, they could go into areas that were 500 degrees Fahrenheit or cooler. And now you're talking about a system where you know, it warns you at 482, which is right around that you know that 500 degree range that I was just talking about. But it goes all the way up to 600, suggesting that th- this material is even more resilient than the stuff that was made back in 1990 with Na- NASA. Uh, one of the other cool things that they added in that that same project where they were redesigning the helmet, they created uh, improved two-way radio linkups in the helmets themselves. Yes, and they also created uh, infrared. Uh, camera system so that you can so that the firefighter could switch to a thermal view and see hot spots in the house and also help firefighters identify uh, if any victims were uh, in the area so that they you know they could see the the heat from a person then they would know that they needed to uh to you know you might not be able to see because the smoke might be so thick yeah. And actually, infrared cameras play a really big role in firefighting technology across the board, not just in personal firefighter gear, but, for example, a helicopter flying over a wildfire might be equipped. In fact, most of them are equipped with infrared uh, cameras and infrared lenses so that they can, so uh, the pilot or the, well, it's not really the pilot, but a firefighter aboard the helicopter can look through and see the hot spots and see the flames, even if the smoke is so thick that you couldn't see anything, you know, just through a regular view to the ground. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry, that was a big digression, but you were uh, going back to the uh, cutting edge gear.
1: Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, we we can keep going with that because sure. um, uh, I was reading an article on in Popular Mechanics about some of the different cutting edge firefighting tools. Um, some firefighters for for things like uh, scenarios like that you're talking about a fire in the in the wilderness, yeah, um, are using unmanned aircraft, yeah, to monitor uh, areas and using um, infrared technology to identify places where. Uh, you know, you can really concentrate on uh, on fighting the fire. The thing is, um, we haven't really talked about it yet. It's on our list of things to do. But these unmanned aerial uh, vehicles can stay in the air far longer than uh, piloted, human piloted aircraft. They can stay in the air for, uh, well, the ones that they use in the, the military can use stay in the air for uh, almost a day,
0: I think, maybe even longer. And they can fly through thick smoke that a... A pilot, depending on the type of aircraft, may not be able to fly through because, you know, smaller aircraft, which is often what's being used to fight fires, uses a lot of line of sight uh, uh, navigational uh, techniques rather than flying by instruments. So if you're going to fly into an area that's that's got a really low visibility, uh, that's very dangerous for the pilot. So it's much more safe to use yes. a, a, a pilotless drone. I mean, you've got the person who's controlling it is controlling it from a a workstation as opposed to mm-hmm. in a cockpit. Um, the, yeah, did you come across the, the? I'm probably going to butcher this name because my Native American uh, languages are non-existent, uh, Icona? Yes, I did. I-K-H-A-N-A. Yeah, it's a, it's a Predator B drone that NASA has um, that is specifically designed to to fly through areas that are uh, either threatened by wildfires or actually currently in experiencing a wildfire, and it's got a lot of sensors on it that allow it to uh, to detect exactly the intensity and location of a fire to help firefighting te- uh, strategies.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't typically think of NASA as being a firefighting agency, but they have been partnering with the the United States Forest Service in developing this technology and working on. Ways to keep forest fires from getting out of control. Um, there's also moderate resolution imaging spectroradiometer, or MODIS, um, and basically that's a. Uh, there are two satellites in orbit around the Earth um, that are using instrumentation that can detect uh, electromagnetic radiation, mm-hmm. um, and so basically over the course of a day or two, uh, MODIS is keeping an eye on on the Earth to look for, uh, radiation that would indicate where, where there's smoke and there's fire. Right. Um, and you can look at things like, uh, you can sort of overlay this with, uh, areas of population density, areas of vegetation, things that might, um, indicate that there is a serious imminent danger of, say, a fire spreading if it's going to get to a a grassland or, you know, coming close enough to an area of population density where you need to start evacuating people to keep them out of the way. Um, you know, it, it, Using satellite imaging is uh, a very sophisticated way of fighting fires because you can get, a, a if you'll pardon the uh, well-worn expression, the big picture view of what's really going on mm-hmm. in, a, in a fire of a size like that. Of course, that's a, a much bigger fire than the ones we were Starting out the podcast talking about
0: yeah yeah I mean NASA's done a lot of work with satellites and fire detection. I mean back in 2003 that's when they started to uh, to develop a software that would scan for for fires and then uh, if a fire was detected then NASA could direct a more powerful satellite to look at that area specifically. There's also the Landsat 7 a uh, satellite which is designed to detect moisture levels in, in forested areas to determine likely spots where wildfires could form because of course a wildfire is more likely to form in a very dry area uh, those conditions are um are are prime for a wildfire because you've got a lot of dry fuel. And then if there's any wind, then that's going to spread that fire around very quickly in that area. So Mm -hmm. that's that's sort of the purpose of Landsat 7 is just to kind of identify potential spots where a wildfire could develop with the right conditions. I mean, obviously, you're going to have to have something that's going to spark the fire. Guys, I know this is a super hot topic right now. eh, eh. we're going to take a quick break and thank our sponsor.
1: I also read about, uh, in, um, in popular mechanics about some software developed by the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Center, um, called Prometheus. Yeah. Uh, nice. The bringer of fire. Yes, exactly. In this case, it's actually designed to identify the likelihood of fire before it actually starts to burn. Yep. Uh, very, a very cool idea. Um, basically using, it's sort of like, if you think about it, it's sort of like a meteorological Models. Mm-hmm. They're taking environmental factors into account, um, ecological factors, and and looking at those to to get an idea of the likelihood of a forest fire starting and spreading. So they can kind of keep an eye on on that before it even
0: really uh, a conflagration starts. Um, ah, excellent. But, thank you. Speaking of much. meteorological equipment, uh, actually a lot of well fire stations tend to have a lot of meteorological equipment. Uh, Actually on the station, mounted on the station. Because, you know, firefighters need to know this information. If, if mm-hmm. humidity is high, then they know that the fire is going to spread more slowly than if it were a dry day. Um, it, they need to know what the wind speed and direction is because that's going to affect how they attack a fire. It also will affect how a fire might spread. So, a lot of weather equipment is uh you know, you'll find a lot of weather equipment attached to your typical fire station. So and you know, that way they have the most up to date information available before they go out to uh to fight a fire. mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um
1: you want to hear about a couple other cutting edge tools? that sure. I ran into yeah. The two
0: I've got that I wanted to talk about are kind of future p- potential applications.
1: Yes. Did you run across the controlled impact rescue impact rescue tool? No. Uh, this is something if you've heard of the company uh, Raytheon, you probably yes. associate them with defense technology and microwave ovens, um, but <laughs> among other things, many many other things. Uh, but uh, the uh, this is sort of uh, high end. Weapons-grade firefighting technology. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking at a concrete wall and you need to get inside because there's a fire on the other side and you've, you've absolutely got to do this, getting through that's going to take you a long time using conventional tools. So um, this is a prototypical tool, or we, at least it was in, uh, at the time this, the article I used as a source is written. Um, it uses blank ammunition cartridges and fires those into the wall to make the wall crumble just from the, the shock waves of firing the blanks into the wall. Um, it, the equipment weighs about 100 pounds, which means that you've got to have two firefighters carrying the equipment up there, but uh, it doesn't require any electricity. You know, It's, it's essentially a, um, a gun, um, but you can use the, the device to basically pound your way through a thick concrete wall a lot faster than you could if you were trying to use a jackhammer or electric saw.
0: I can easily see a fictionalized version of that weapon being used in video games from here on out. Oh, sure. Um,
1: and then uh, did you read anything about using electricity to fight fires? Yes,
0: yes. Uh, that is one of the ones that I wanted to talk about. Uh, over in Harvard University, some researchers discovered something interesting. They found that uh, you know, it's been known that, that fi- flames will react to an electric field mm-hmm. for quite some time. But what the, the researchers at Harvard University found was that by using a variable electric field, which means they were using alternating current, uh, to go, uh, to travel across a wire, uh, they would create this variable electric field. They would direct it toward a flame and they discovered that it would snuff a flame out. And the, the, what was at work here was that the, um, the, the, Variable electric field was actually exerting force on charged particles within the flame itself.
1: Mm-hmm. Probably, it, probably carbon particles, from what I read.
0: Yeah, and it and it's pushing those particles away from the fuel source. So it's literally pushing the uh, the flame off the fuel. So it snuffs it out. You know, and the fuel, re- the rest of the fuel remains unburned. Uh, but this is um, this is just a small kind of uh, laboratory setting uh, that. You know, it's not a, it's not a f- like a field test. And moreover, this sort of application is really going to be useful for small confined spaces. Mm-hmm. So any place where a fire might break out in a a tiny area, like let's say it's a, a a compartment in a ship, like a navy vessel. Okay. And it's down below decks, and you have a fire breakout. Well, this could be a good way to contain that fire, to snuff out that fire quickly, um, and you. You know, that you've got a, again, a pretty confined space in that when you're working with that. If you're talking about something like a, a house fire mm-hmm. or a wildfire, this approach is not necessarily going to be very effective. So it's not like we can just ma- make a massive electric wand pointed at California and say, you're done. No more <laughs> fires for you. Right. It's not going to happen that way. Plus a lot of people are going to be mad that their tiki torches just went out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thank you.
1: But yeah, you could use it to uh um to escape a fire if you were in a situation they uh, That's
0: a good point. Yeah, you can make a lane.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, the uh, article I read on it basically said if you were a firefighter inside a building and there were a wall of fire in front of you, you could, you know, create an escape route for yeah. yourself by using this on a on a small area. Uh, enough to to get through and and to the other side safely. Yeah,
0: yeah, you wouldn't be able to necessarily put out the fire but you could at least create an avenue to get out of that situation.
1: Or it could be used as a uh sort of to augment a sprinkler system um mounted on the ceiling so that you could, you know, use that on a, a small area within a building which would be kind of interesting. I don't know. It would sort of depend on the type of equipment the uh that you were working with and, and you, if you had something like electronic equipment.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you gotta remember problem. that you're generating an electronic, electric field. You're not shooting lightning out the end of something. So that yeah. is something to remember. It's not like you're blasting stuff with lightning and then the fire goes out. That's, it's that'd be cool, <laughs> but it's not what's happening. Did you read about uh, using acoustic waves to put out flames? No, I didn't. All right. So this is another one of those things where it's an idea that could have potential, but, uh, but it's going to take some more tests and some more, uh, experimentation to really find out if it's if it's a worthwhile pursuit. Okay. The idea is that you use um, acoustic waves, so sound, to snuff out flames. And there were some early experiments done, mostly by students, really like science students, mm-hmm. you know, college level and even lower, where they would use a really sort of a low-frequency sound, like we're talking about in the 40 hertz frequency range. Wow. And boost it up really powerfully. And and when brought close to a flame, the flame would go out. And uh, the idea is that we might be able to use this kind of technology in areas where there's uh, uh, zero gravity, for example, a space station. Mm -hmm. So if a fire broke out in a space station, that would be catastrophic. It's also really unusual because, you know, flames behave in a in a really odd way in outer space. Mm -hmm. And it's because of the lack of gravity. So instead of a, you know, a teardrop-shaped flame that you might see on a candle here on Earth, in space, it's round. Because Mm -hmm. there's no up and there's no down. There's no, you know, the heat doesn't go up, the heat just stays where it is. And it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And it does, but yeah, heat doesn't travel. It doesn't go outward. There's no, (laughs) which is kind of hard to get your head around. But uh, it's also in the outer space, in a, in a place like the space station, using water is not terribly effective either. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't behave the same way in a zero-G environment. Using foam is really messy and, and dangerous, uh, potentially dangerous as well. So that's why they're looking at various alternatives to using a physical substance um, well, really, the, the basis of, of fighting fires up to this point has been chemical.
1: Mm-hmm, you're, yeah.
0: you're, you're aiming at the fuel and you're trying to put out the the flame that way. Um, this is more of a physical way of fighting fire. You're physically finding a way to remove the flame from the fuel and thus snuff it out. Mm-hmm. And both the electric field and the acoustic wave methods fall into that category. Well, that wraps up another classic episode of Tech Stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that one if you have any suggestions for future episodes of tech stuff brand new topics that i haven't covered before send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle with both of those is techstuff, H-S-W. Don't forget, you can find hot, hot, hot merchandise over at teepublic.com slash techstuff. That's T-E-E public.com slash techstuff. Every purchase helps support the show. Plus, we've got some really cool designs and we're adding more all the time. So go check that out. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. And I'll talk to you again really soon.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.